Uh, All right, welcome to uh, Pine Witch Twenty B. This is the end of twenty twenty, the greatest year on earth. The opening track you heard an excerpt from the legendary Pete Dunne, a man who died this year, and a good friend of the podcast. And his album, I think called Whacked, is out now. And there is a place to buy it, a link to it at the end of the podcast. Pete Dunne's website, and that track is a real earworm. It is. Fantastic. We're going to be playing some of Pete's music throughout the podcast today. And we're treating this podcast like, how do I say this? Anyone who's listening on New Year's Eve on your own, which I've done many times, I have the Don with me. Good day to you, sir. They're not my pronouns, but okay. Not her pronouns, a big topic of the year. Uh, the Don is with me. We're going to have a New Year's party atmosphere for the end of the worst year in civilization. We have mimosas. Cheers, the Don. Thank you, thank you. We just put down the phone to our friends uh, Shannon and Ella in Singapore. Shannon and Ella were kind of fluffers for this conversation, so we had a couple of drinks beforehand. But we're here to... I, I, I don't know what we're here to do. We're here to, first of all, celebrate... As I said, Pete Dunne, his album is coming out. You're going to hear his music. He was a legendary guy. The Don, as some of you regular listeners would know, have has been counting down her top 20 pints of Shawnee B. Pete Dunne was probably going to be in the top three. Probably he was due to be number one. one. He yeah. was due to be number one. And he unfortunately passed away. He, Pete passed away before all the COVID. And we both know Pete quite well. What would he have made of the whole year? God, I don't know, and I feel very arrogant trying to figure it out, but... We kind of know. Yeah, like, I'd have skipped it too. Yeah, so a couple of... Uh, and also in, in honour of uh, Dave Buchanan, who died in December uh, earlier this month, and uh, it's very weird being a podcaster who've had, who's had two guests die. Yeah, I never met Dave, but I, I so I wasn't involved in the last episode, but I thought it was really lovely. He seemed like a great guy, and yeah. I, I liked your little... Homage to him. Got a bit wobbly-lipped. I got a bit wobbly-lipped. I, like, I, I didn't know him very well, and I, I don't know his wife, and I don't know his best friend, who he's worked with since he was, like, he's been a pal of his since 11. But this uh, episode also marks the end of five years, would you believe, of a pint with Shawnee B. Um, and it's been a ride. Thank you to everyone who has been a supporter of the podcast on Patreon. And I really mean that. I'm, I, there's a lot of people who've stuck with the podcast and keep paying five or two euros or a euro every month and uh, keep us going and every little bit helps. Five years. If, if someone had said to me I'd be here five years later, I would have laughed. Um, it's been great and I've met so many people and so many people I'm still in touch with and friends with, which is good. That's pretty cool. We're here, I don't know, we're doing a review of probably the worst year of Live in living memory for many of us with COVID and Donald Trump and all that sort of stuff. What are your top lines, Don? Can we just do a run through? Because I feel like I've just run a marathon. Can we do a run through of what the fuck just happened? What the fuck just happened? So, twenty twenty started and there's a few bushfires and and then March happened. <laughs> Suddenly the world was switched off, and we were like, what? Everything's closed. This has never happened before. And then Tiger King was brought into our lives. Tiger and that bitch, King. Carol Baskin, that caused all of this. It feels like a this. long time ago since Tiger was around. Right? I know. That feels like three pandemics ago. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're doing this podcast 
knowing full well that most of you listening have probably had enough of reviews of the year from every single media vehicle that you listen to, but so we're going to do exactly the same thing. <laughs> well, yeah, we are. We aren't because it's, it's you know we've had. I suppose one of the things that's interesting about it is the is how personal it gets and it, how personal it got, and how political it got. Yeah, yeah. There's this great propensity for humans to tackle emergencies and uh, death, and and they tackle it with conspiracy. Oh, it's not as bad as everyone's saying. Or people are trying to scare us, or people are trying to. It's easier to believe, and it's also more convenient when you yeah. want an excuse to continue being selfish and also not to have to grapple with great fears and existential dread. We had conspiracy theory, though, running all the way from the Wuhan virus through yeah. Donald Trump, through even here in Ireland, people saying, oh, masks don't work. And you know the same thing happened with nine eleven. You know when when something when something just out of nowhere appears, people just reach for everything other than the truth. Yeah, but you just look at why is that? What comfort does that bring people? And I certainly found here that people who in March were taking it seriously and doing the right thing by six months later were full on tin full hat wearing people. But that's because to say, yeah, I believe it's real, and I. I totally believe in science. It's just that it's inconvenient to me and I want to be a selfish bastard. But the cognitive dissonance that's made so much easier by just going along with conspiracy theories, which means that you can still do what's comfortable for you, feel a little bit happy about what you're doing. That's why. I mean, the, fr- the first big kind of conspiracy about COVID was the whole, it's just another flu and everyone's overreacting. And I remember maybe in September realising that three football fields full of the New England Patriots, one of the biggest stadiums in, in of NFL, were full of dead people. And normally a flu will kill a third of a stadium, you know, or a quarter of a stadium. And still, you know, it's still Donald Trump persisted. Yeah, but I mean, like, then, then it became, okay, it's not just a flu, but you're fine if you're not people who are medically vulnerable. And that was a real breakdown in I humanity. Mean, our numbers in Ireland would be... A, substantially less if some bright spark had gone what about the people who live in old folks homes you know we lost that lots of countries lost that Mm. New York lost that and so we end up with a death rate that's you know would be a lot lower and yes everyone's going around seeing like there's still a lot of people going I just let it rip through the society but it just I don't know, there's a sort of greed as well that goes through sort of selfishness about I want to do what I want to do or I want to buy what I want to go buy. And as I said in in an article, we kind of cleared the head, we cleared the bar of when can I get my hair done and have a point. Yeah, I also think it was severely mismanaged here. And that's not, it's not even that I didn't particularly like every lockdown, but I kind of thought it was a massive mistake to try and paint, like our first lockdown was a proper lockdown. Anything after that, we were coming up with all these different levels and trying to paint it as like full on level five. It's top notch. It's a lockdown, except schools are open and this and that. And I kind of go, why would you expect? And I'm not, I'm not what about and saying it's all right for people to be selfish, but I'm saying, 
why would you expect people to make massive sacrifices? And the thing there is like, oh, is it that big a sacrifice to sit at home watching Netflix? Well, for some people it is. Mm. Like for some people mentally it fucked them, it destroyed them. Mm. Some people have terrible situations at home. So it's not everyone's in the same boat. So asking everyone to muck in and make a massive sacrifice and be miserable, but yet also showing them that you're fucking it in their faces is not going to work. Mm. And then when you do that, it's a half-assed lockdown, which has some effect, but not, not a full effect. And then eventually you have to lift the, re- the, the restrictions, which is basically like saying, now we're not saying you should go out and mingle, but you weren't allowed to before, but everyone who wanted to still did, but you were terrified. Now we're saying you're allowed to. You're literally condoning people mixing just before mm. Christmas. That's what happened here. And, and like, there's this surprise that humans are humans. I suppose the, the big take for me on COVID, and we don't, I'm not going to be playing any Donald Trump stuff because you've heard that, you've probably all heard that from the last... 24, 48 hours, but like his attitude to it and his subsequent losing of the presidency is is predicated on the fact that if he had if he had been and acted like a proper leader and said, you know, we need to we need to come together and we need to we need to mask and we need to all the things that he said were bullshit, caused more Americans to die than any other country in the world, and it would have got him reelected if he'd done that. Yeah, if he'd shown leadership and done the right thing, but it's Donald Trump, so... And then, not to leave Donald Trump out, we had the time... Remember, he, he was doing his briefings for a while until everyone t- took the piss out of him and he got really touchy about it. And he said something about, in, we can inject, like, through light and stuff, we could inject disinfectant bleach. bleach. Yeah. <laughs> was there much fun to be had during the year? I think there was. I think it depends what state you're in, obviously. There was fun what to be had. <laughs> no, what state you were in? The state. The No, there was fun to be had. Even in just like there is a coming together in how shit is all this and people saying the wrong thing on Zoom and how fucking awkward it is. There's a laugh about that. There's every so often, every one in ten people are saying, "Well, I've written three books and I did started yoga and I'm just more productive than ever." And everyone else is just sitting there like fucking two stone heavier, going "Fuck off." You know, I put on the COVID nineteen, as I call it. Depends. Um, there's a certain kind of fun and celebratory nature that we can all just go "Fuck 2020." <laughs> Look, it's a write off at this stage. Uh, speaking of comedy things, um, twenty twenty must die. Is that the name of it? Have you watched the other night? Death to 2020 is a new show on Netflix. If you haven't watched it, watch it. Also, Soul on Disney, which is a fantastic movie. But Charlie Booker, uh, he of Black Mirror frame, did a fantastic uh, viral swipe uh, earlier in the year, if you can find that. But I don't know. It's It's been... I think if you take the actual reality of the virus, and there's probably people listening to this who still believe it's just all bullshit and the hoax. It's clearly not, okay? You know, the... We're still they, waiting on our check from Soros. Well, yeah, exactly. Trying to come up with a conspiracy theory like this. Donald Trump is the savior and he's being misunderstood. and He's been crucified like Jesus was. And he's there not only draining the swamp, but he's protecting the children of America from child sex trafficking. And, An unlikely have, hero. Yeah. And, and you know, masks don't work and we have... Masks help child sex another, trafficking. Did you know that? They probably do. <laughs> you can't catch them. It, 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 there's an argument that says it was the death of news this year. Yeah. The fourth estate. Now, the fourth estate is... And, and, and never has it been more clear to me that we need journalists 
And we also need journalists without agendas because we spent a lot of the year watching CNN because it's the only, thankfully we don't get Fox News, I think. And yet, I, as I've said a few times in the podcast, I spent a lot of time listening to Sean Hannity and people like this who were, who were the kind of Trump public relations department putting out this fake news. I, I noticed that Donald Trump basically, one of the reasons about his whole election problem and it was stolen is if you look at Donald Trump, he says a lot of things that he's doing about everyone else. So he says, you know, CNN, fake news, everything's fake news. Whereas Fox News is primarily fake news. It's like, like an abusive relationship, really, isn't it? You know, I'm great. I, I love women. It's nonstop I, I, projecting I, and gaslighting the whole fucking time. As I said in one of my eyes, I've done more women than... I've done more for women, sorry, than anybody. But, like, I love women. I love black people. I love people who... You know, he says all these things and he does the opposite. So my theory is that he actually did try and rig the election. Hence, he got 70 million votes. And his riggers probably went, he probably said, is 70 going to be okay? And they went, mate, seven, no one's ever got 70 million. Yeah, you, don't overshoot. You know, not even JFK got 70 million. And he goes, great. And then he gets turned. And okay, maybe the fucking Democrats did rig the election, although we have no proof of that. But even if they did, they probably went, we better go for 80 because Donald Trump is saying it's going to be rigged. That means he's And he would have to have the best results ever in history of any president ever. Yeah. So yeah. there is that. But I mean... Which you still got apart from... I'm just disappointed in the Democrats. If they went to rig it, they didn't bother their arses to rig the Senate. Yeah, exactly. So you have people down the ballot who are, who are a Democrat that didn't get elected. So anyway, it's just been... I don't know. It's been very draining. I really feel that if Donald Trump had got elected again, I would be... That, that might have been... This, I was reasonably resilient throughout the year. But that might have broken me. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know whether I just could have looked to four more years at this time of like forget about all the COVID and electioneering in America but like even climate and things like that just we have a neoliberal normal American president in charge who's talking about trying to heal and get things better like it just feels slightly less like everything's absolutely fucked yeah and we have Kamala Harris who's who's probably going to be the first female president of America the way these things pan out and Joe Biden's Not no to spring. dig Joe's grave or anything. Well, he's no spring chuck, but even if he does get through it, I doubt he'll run for a second yeah, term. Yeah, yeah. I think he'll push her forward, which would be fantastic. Anyway, in honour of Donald Trump, and because we are celebrating the launch of the late Pete Dunne's new album, who is part sponsoring this episode, we are going to play this from his new album. It's called Big Head. And guess who it might be about? She had the biggest head that I've ever seen. Three hundred weight of sunblock green. Her mama died when she was born. He set sail for the Cape of Good Horn. We had a crazy time, we had a crazy time, we had a crazy time that time.
So that is Big Head by Pete Dunn, and the album is Whacked. Uh, you heard the first a little excerpt of the first track, which is the standout track of the album. We're going to play one more to close us. Yeah, we're back with the dawn. We're doing a mimosa-filled alternative New Year's Eve for those who don't enjoy New Year's Eve. What do you think 2021 is going to bring? Uh, well, I'm a pessimist, as you know. You must have been delighted this year. Oh, sure. I have been. I've been as smug as fuck. I've been rubbing my hands together, pursing my lips, and dragging my cardigan fiercely around myself, saying, "No, told you, told you." Not even you at your most pessimistic. Oh, please stop. But I found, like, I, I did find the bitchy part of me kind of going as as the uh, joy and optimism and hope, I suppose you say, hope uh, drained out of people early on this year. And you can see the real fucking existential dread hitting in. I found myself going, oh, welcome to the party, you're late. Pull up a pew. And I could, bitch, bitchy of me. And now I kind of find myself going, Jesus, we can't all be like this. No, fuck off, back to your naivety. We can't do this because you, I have to encounter them in the supermarket and stuff. And you've just, you've just queue now and it's different to before. It has to be spaced out and then you can't see the whole queue and someone stands in the wrong place and everyone wants to stab them because they're clearly, they've come out today to try and get one over on you. And there's just so much anger and I'm going, you pricks have been going along as if the world has been fine for all of your existence and it's only coming to you now that it's all bullshit. And I've been living like this the whole time and I did have my little shade and Freud early on and now I'm just like, I want everyone to be stupid again. There's not enough room for all of us to be a princess. I suppose I, I look at it slightly different to you, um, not being an Aspie um, depression head, but um, <laughs> I, I kind of saw through enough. I, I, we, we talked about this. There's a great movie called For Sama, which is a documentary which we watched before the old problems of this year, about people in Aleppo in, in Syria trying to cope with the war there over the last four years. and. You know, trying to run a hospital under the rubble with no electricity and running water and trying to raise children down there. And we were basically, and yeah, I get it that there are people who've who've had problems living in close quarters with loved ones and there's been mental uh, health issues. But you end up with a situation where, and, and maybe I'm being slightly mean about this, but we have every book, every movie, every piece of food every drink we could want uh, we're just being asked to stay indoors and that's proving such a problem for humanity even accepting totally accepting that a lot of people did really struggle but what sort of a society have we become when we can't respond uh in a way where where we where we have all of these gifts given to us i mean even imagine if this pandemic happened without zoom or phone, yeah or i mean like i thought early on imagine if this happened 15 years earlier yeah. where we don't have facebook in our pocket we're not so connected as we as we are and we had, we, we'd feel very grateful that we have text messages but and it's satellite dishes but we'd be thrilled with that but yeah i think there are two separate issues there because there is the selfishness of i'm bored and i want to do what i want to do and it's very hard on me because my mental health and i like i have been deeply offended by the extent to which i've heard the term mental health this year yeah. because I'm sorry, nobody gives more of a shit about it now than they did last year. They really don't. But it has been cheapened and damaged in such a way that, certainly here in Ireland, we've worked really hard to take it seriously. And it's just been thrown around. Like, I want to make, like, getting on social media and saying, so I have this thing and it's against the rules, but I did everything right so far and I feel like my mental health, am I allowed to have a pass? Please tell me I'm allowed to have a pass. 
And there are two very distinct separations that I make in mental health. There are people who struggle all the time with mental health and it's an existential thing. And then there's a valid thing where it's situational. Something bad happens, someone dies, there's a bereavement, there's a breakup or there's a pandemic that's fucked with people's heads. And I think that's a really valid hurt and I worry about how people are doing. But it's not the same as ongoing lifelong mental health issues. Both of those groups have had the piss ripped out of them by selfish people who just throw around the term mental health. I I don't want to group them together because, you know, yeah, we have Netflix. Yeah, we have all of that. But would you like to be a kid growing up in certain houses in Dublin right now? No, and I and I, I I hope I kind of covered that when I was saying what I was saying. But you know, I I I I wonder would we be better off? This is kind of counterintuitive, but if we would we have been better off if it was fifteen years ago and we didn't have phones and we didn't have the internet? No, and we didn't. Have, well, that's the obvious answer is no. But the, the well, other it depends answer how is, well you're doing in your life as it is. But the, the the other answer is that we we would still have to get on and and and. and manage this thing we wouldn't know what the internet was we wouldn't know what mobile phones were or the fact that we could be so close and yet so far on a zoom Mm. call and i'm wondering whether we would have you know you're told to hunker down you hunker down you get your food i think there is a contagious there is a contagious sort of upset and dread that even people who felt they were doing okay are catching it from everything they're seeing is all doom and gloom i get that and i get that for a lot of people, you're trying to stay connected the year that's in it, particularly if you're, depending on where you are, but if you're in a proper lockdown, you're trying to stay connected. But there's also a PC that says, I actually need to log off for a couple of days just to mind myself. So I get that they, there, there's a harmful us there. But bottom line, COVID's a bit like Christmas. It's a bit much. And <laughs> I know some people have had a great time kind of going, oh, it's very sad, all the deaths. But like, they have a nice home. They have a nice family. They're happy in their relationship. And yeah, it's been boring at times, but it's been time to reconnect. And, you know, they got through it. Not that they didn't have a cry now and then, but they got through it and there's there's positive parts. That's just not the fucking same thing mm-hmm. as someone who inherently struggles anyway, or someone who's in a violent relationship, or someone who's just desperately alone. It's just not the fucking same no, thing. No, I know. And I, I think, you know, you know without, without demeaning or, or belittling that, that, you know, there's people who are homeless or living in violent situations or who have mm. no mental health issues in normal times which I guess this pandemic accentuates but but if you've ever been at home and isolated and in that situation which I have not having connectivity connectivity doesn't fix anything but it does help because I can fucking tell you it would feel a whole lot different if you've been locked down for six months with somebody who's has always been controlling and violent and is so much worse because it's fucking pandemic on mm. and that everything has just been escalated. And if your only connection is the odd text message versus being on Facebook all the time, having Zoom yeah. calls all the time, you will fucking feel it. Did, did it make this year okay? Absolutely not. But I, it, yeah, you would feel the difference. Yeah, and I was kind of playing a little bit devil's advocate there. But like, you know, having grown up in the 80s and 90s myself, you kind of... I'm always intrigued, not not even about this issue of, of COVID, but just in general about... I love the idea about the fact that we can take the phone out and we can uh, find how to get wherever we want to by walking our car in seconds through Google Maps. We can find... You know, when I was growing up, people were selling encyclopedias door to door, and now we have Wikipedia, and we have Google, which asks us to search. We have every movie. I'm just, I'm, I'm more intrigued by the the spotlight it has put on where we're going as a species. Where, you know, even to this day, we're 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 out 
in the pubs that we miss so much, but we're spending most of our time on our phones in the pubs. We're yeah. not engaging with people. And my whole hope all year, especially at the start, I, I really felt at the start that this was a reset button. And as it trolls through month 10 and 11, as we are at now, you kind of go, are we really just desperately trying to get this thing to go away that we may go back to normal. Yeah, but if you think about why it would be good for the reset button, the idea that people would slow down and to stop feeling like just because your phone beeped, you have to be present yeah. and you and, and no need to be present at the moment and no, no ability to sit waiting on a pint or waiting for an appointment without a babysitter in front of you and also feeling like you look like a weirdo if you don't have a babysitter in front of you. All of those things, you can see, yeah, isn't it great to have a reset? But what that reset probably has done for most people is make them absolutely desperate for and cling to the comforts it's a bit like saying we were all put on a diet for the things that are bad for us the sugar the the high fat stuff Mm -hmm. and thinking it's going to be better for us in the end we're not going to be like that but i think a lot of the world are just craving sugar like crazy now and they will never give it up again because it's been too difficult so what else we what are the things that we were kind of um, doing during the year was coming up with little tips and plans to get through the various lockdowns from around the world. One of the one of the first ones that I did was take a clock off the wall. Oh, that's been driving me mad all year. What? Because I'm still attached. You prefer the clock there? Yeah. No, I see why you took it off, but I'm still attached to time. To me, it was the, the tick. We have so I, I have in my apartment. Uh, a sort of an Ikea clock on the wall, which just tick, 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 ticks away, you know, and you don't really notice it because it's just ticking away. But when you're on your own, early in the pandemic, when I was on my own, I one day decided I'm going to take that clock off the wall, take the battery out, and just the lack of time ticking by in a kind of noisy way yeah and oh, no, I absolutely got why really you did it and you're dead right really important yeah. I think it was weird for me like I, I did find I, like I find I looked to see where the clock is and it's not there and I find it I, I get anxious if my phone isn't beside I just want to know what time it is so that so that I can relax and go it's plenty of time it's like Which when you wake up on our phone I know I know but sometimes it's not beside me but it's, it's a bit like you know when you wake up and you want to know it's 2am you go okay loads yeah. of time left back asleep it's okay it's okay mm. But then at the same time at home, the, a very similar clock I'm installing on nearly every wall because I'm trying to get my kids to manage time for exactly the same reason. Like, I don't want them to be anxious all the time, but it's my job to get them here, there, do this, do that. And I want them to learn to manage time so that they're in charge of the time rather than having someone stand over them saying, come on, come on, we're late all the time. So it's important because I'm not a parent and you are. Yeah, literally, that's all. So one of the other things we missed, of course, like most of you listening, was traveling. Um, we also have a very good tip uh, on how... Because this, I, I think this thing is going to be around for most of 2021, while the vaccines, the famous vaccines roll out. But we had a nice way of overcoming our desire for a couple of travel journeys, both, uh, every year. How did we do that? Anthony Bourdain on Netflix, which we have finally caught up on. We still have some episodes left. We do. A hidden gem is Parts Unknown, the, I think, eight or nine or maybe 11 season. Something like 11. 11 season uh, series by Anthony Bourdain, who, who topped himself a couple of years ago. And he has this absolutely beautiful body of work left in 
perpetuity for all of us to consume where he kind of goes to weird and wonderful places with a vague kind of sense of checking out the local food but also atmosphere and color and it was you know any time we would patch in on zoom we would watch a couple of episodes and pretend that we were going on holiday to this place. It was great, wasn't it? Yeah, we'd like, if we were going somewhere that's whiny in the wine region, we'd go, yeah. okay, hang on, pause, I'm going to get myself some wine. We're on our holly bops now. It's a little bit dated, some of it, which I think is nice because I'm looking at it now and I think it's a really important body of work. And I think anybody who watched it will probably have said, oh yeah, that was quite cool. But I have never heard anyone talk about it like it was an important body of work. Like mm. David Attenborough stuff. If you have David Attenborough for ecological stuff and animals and nature there, there's this time capsule of all of these different countries and all these different places with different cultures which he's kind of dug into respectfully and asked mm. questions in a way i'm not sure he could now yeah um for me as someone who's traveled around the world there was a kind of a very interesting kind of you know anthony Bourdain ended up killing himself i think in switzerland um and you know had a you know kind of rambunctious personal life should we say but I was I'm watching him traveling the world and seeing all these different cultures and kind of realizing kind of this is it and it was you know his suicide makes an awful lot more sense in my view um, watching this thing over the long haul see I don't, I know you've said that I don't know it does but I think that for me, for me. I think it, it depends very much because we don't know we've seen aspects of his personality and I quite like him as a TV personality but we don't really know what way he is and if he's someone like you I can understand why you finally get it that's not it at all if he's somebody who's always struggled he was exercising a lot of demons throughout the the series and and, and each season you know so there'd be there'd be certain episodes within each season where you go Okay, some shit went down. And, you yeah, know. but that's with the hindsight knowledge. Of course, but like no one was expecting him to top himself. And it is hindsight. You know? mm. It's not that surprising to me that he he felt a little bit like a lost soul going around trying to find the net, you know, he, he, Mr. FOMO or something. Like yeah, that. but I mean, like you'd said early on, like you saw a little similarity there and you're like, okay, I kind of get it that maybe he's just seen all there is seen. He's quite happy to say, mm, blow the candle out now. Yeah, I've, yeah and that might be the case, but then it might be a case of, where he never was okay with living too long. And I, Jesus, I have no idea. Do not know the chap. I find it interesting to think about, but I'm slow to attribute what well, I understood. I took this from its left, therefore that's what it was. Because applying your life experience, that's what it seems like it must be. Applying my life experience, what it seems like is deciding, I'm kind of done now. I want to do a big fucking world tour to finish it off. Yeah. But I never intend on living long. But that's my life experience, which is probably not accurate. That there's also the third option that maybe he was fine and suddenly it was like, I I feel unwell, I'm not able for this. We don't know. Mm. Uh, but I'm slow to, like, I think that's one of the things we've learned from 2020 is trying to, I hate the phrase, I'm non-judgmental. Non-judgmental <laughs> means one of two things. It either means I have absolutely no integrity whatsoever and I bend whatever way the wind blows to suit me because I'm a shitty fucking person, but everyone thinks I'm nice. That's one of the versions of non-judgmental. The other version is... I see everything through my own lens and I have the arrogance to think that I can step outside of my own personal experience to say, oh, but I'll just look at it in a non-judgmental way. Like therapists, counsellors, piss off. Like stop saying you're non-judgmental. No, you're not. The problem is having the arrogance to believe that you, you as a human being have the capacity to be non-judgmental. That's problematic. Yeah. 
Anyway, Parts Unknown is the name of the show. I think it's on Netflix most of the, in most of the world and worth a look. And also you could probably make it your little travel journal for the year. You could just take three or four episodes a week and go and see where he brings you. There are very few places that I'd actually go, yeah, we need to go there. So he covers a lot of ground that you can kind of write off your bucket list if you have them there. What else? What else was... So it's still the... Um... It's the fifth birthday of your potty pod. I have not prepared questions, but I'm going to ask them just up the top of my head for the crack sure. to be fucking awkward. First question. Have you had any guests where you've gone, this person is either so egregious or so fucking boring, I am not putting their shit out whilst talking to them? Um, so... No, would be the general answer. There, there have been a, a very like count on one hand a couple of podcasts that never did go out, but they weren't for that reason. There were people who I was, who I've had to interview. Who mid-interview, I'm going okay. I don't believe in what this person's saying, but I, I, I never saw the podcast as something that was me out to get somebody or me out to try and convince somebody to my way of thinking, which, as you know, I try yeah. to do all the time. Uh, but um, in some cases I was able to just be quiet and let them talk and, and but anyway where they were just so shite where they're so full of shit they're wrapping themselves in knots and you're going it's not even that I don't agree with them I just I can't put I this mean, you've, shit out you, you've gone through the top 20 there were a num- there were quite a lot actually there were probably 10% of the guests who arrived in wearing their public relations hat yeah there were another 10% who probably arrived in and came out of the interview going, I can't believe I said what I said. And some of those people were a little bit nervous about whether they were then happy for that to go out as a show. Because most of my most of my guests are not professionals. Most of my yeah. guests are, are not celebrities. So they're not used to it. So the, the conversation can, could often stray into them opening up maybe more than they would normally. But there was certainly no censorship. There was a couple where... You know, it was one of my great friends from Scotland who we had a great chat about his life and a huge part of his life was to do with a business deal went wrong and his wife felt, you know, maybe that shouldn't be wash you should yeah. be washing your laundry. And so that you know, I to- I also give every single guest a last cut. Yeah. And even uh, rest in peace, Dave Buchanan was one of the only guests who I mentioned in the last podcast who came and you know, said oh, I forgot to mention X and Y. I need to put it in. So he came and he came and tried to fix his podcast the next day. Uh, and there was also uh, Sarah and Mary, who I did back to back podcasts in New York, in in Stitch Bar, and I pre- I, I, t- I did the podcasting equivalent of not taking the lens cap off the camera, and I recorded them for two hours each, including one where Mary cried. And I got home and nothing was recorded. Oh, and Sarah went, screw you, I'm not going back to do that again. Mary came back and read, that's Mary Spillane, if you want to look back and listen to that. Uh, she said, I'm not going to cry for you this time, and she didn't. But she redid it again, so fair play to her. Right, so of all your guests, imagine you have to have two guests that are on with each other, interviewing each other, and we're not on, it's just the two of them. Which two guests would you think you should put together? Interviewing each other. Yeah, or doing what we do, just right. like shooting the ship. Which two guests would you like to shove together in a podcast recording oh, room? God, that's a tough question. Um, it can I, be I just for know. entertainment value, by the way. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. Well, you know, I interviewed uh, Mother Sophia 
and we're still friends. We don't agree on her view on life and my view on life. She's a Indian, you know, model who a TV personality and singer, and she was the first person that we did ayahuasca with. She believes she's the Virgin Mary, and she believes in fifth dimensions, and she believes in a coming age of Aquarius, and she believes Donald Trump is Jesus returned to earth, and she believes it. She's, she doesn't get angry with people who don't believe her, but she has this. I don't know how to say it. It's, it's you know, it's any any anything that that kind of plays into a QAnon kind of story. Yeah, full she on. she's full on about it. Now pitching her up against I don't know one of my very pragmatic friends like Glenn Condy or somebody, or you know, putting somebody in there and going. All right, you two duke it out and see what happens, or, or even take someone like Peter Casey and have the. Two I mean, of like them. Big Brother House, you're obviously putting in Melissa Fee yeah, and Peter Casey. You know, but I, I mean, I wouldn't like it ever to get nasty. Melissa Fee was somebody who I, I think I, I was, I, I got a lot of flack on that because I, I didn't. I think you picked her as one of your top twenty, just because it's an interesting. Yeah, podcast. no, look, it's 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 not at all my vibe. However. No. You have a thing long before you met her, which was that you have guests on, you've invited guests who've been gracious enough to come on, and some are going to be fascinating, some are not going to be great, but they're talking about their lives, and you're not there to catch them out, and you always give them final cut. Look, if you're having somebody on who's got some interesting worldviews and is a bit out there, you're not, you can't have them on to be an asshole to them, or to make a tit of them. I mean, she's an intelligent woman, she's aware her views will not be mainstream, and that's fine. The idea that you should have ripped into her you, like people are doing you a favor when they're a guest so yeah. there is that yeah and that doesn't and mean we, you can't you know, disagree but like they are your guest you know i the interesting thing about mother's fear is i've i you know when we interviewed it was three years ago and she had all these prophecies that you know the planets are being born and the whole world is going to open you know and it's all happening you know two in two months time and two months time comes and three years comes and she's still saying the same thing so Imagine if she had been right. Imagine if all the things that she said had actually happened. And of course they didn't, but that would have been a scoop. <laughs> but, well, do you think 2020 was a lot? <laughs> well, you know, but, but Mother Sophia is still peddling the same stuff. She's still saying the same thing. And it's a bit like Donald Trump saying the election was rigged and I, 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 it was stolen from me, but we don't have any proof, you know. And I suppose... The great thing about the podcast and five years of doing it was the amount of people I met. And the amount of people who I mean, I'm still friends with Melissa. Yeah. I can still talk to her and slag her off, and she takes it and she slags me off and thinks I believe too much in CNN and the fake news media. Um, you meet all these people. The the way the podcast was structured was I'd ask guests to recommend other guests. And that's how I kept the, yeah. the, the the ball rolling. And there's probably you know seventy people who I'm still friends with. It's like a Shawnee virus. <laughs> um, the reproductive rate was. I suppose. I suppose if we want to talk about the podcast, I kind of, I kind of question. It's, you know, you spend five year, five years of your life doing it, which I kind of did. I didn't do an awful lot of work apart from a few jobs here and there. Didn't make any money from it, apart from the people who I've thanked from Patreon who have been great. And you end up, you know, there's a nihilistic conclusion. You kind of go, well, was it that important? I'll tell you where it's important. It's important, I think, for people who I think have got a story and they have done things in their life that no one's going to give them big awards for. Uh, You know, I I, I spoke to a Vietnam vet, two Vietnam vets in America, 
uh, one very old, uh, sorry, one Vietnam vet and one uh, Gulf War vet, uh, Marines guys. And, you know, these guys have done a lot and seen a lot in their life. And uh, their families came to me and said, oh, it's amazing. Even my family, even when I did, did a conversation with my father, you know, it's like you end up having conversations with people even those that you know that you didn't even realize and they're never going to be famous but th- there's a sort of a there's a value on them there's a sociological kind of this is what it was like living and here's what my my mind was thinking and here's what i did and so in some ways you leave something behind yeah i mean i've always i've got a quite no I, I, as i've got older i've got more cynical about leaving anything behind because I mean, you know this about me, and you're you're kind of similar. You know, this podcast series is a. You know, a lot of people say, "Oh, Sean, Johnny B, well, you're way ahead of the curve on the podcast thing." Now, actually, I wasn't. I was midwave, but just because I was kind of early doesn't mean that the thing is going to be a success. Because the last, the joke is now everyone has their own podcast, maybe listened to by themselves and their parents. You, you, you end up now in masses of competition. I remember about when I started, there were about 200,000 new podcasts launched around the world. That number is probably 2 million, you know, and everyone can do it. And so I think podcasting will be a bit of a fad. I think what's going to happen is podcasting and radio will smash together and we'll get something new that will be probably radio delivered with an ability to... to so what will replace it though? Because the vacuum then exists because it, it served a purpose. It was outside of radio. It was a little bit like Facebook. It was a, it was a have your say. I think what it I think what it exposed was the media owners' complete failure to understand that humanity has an appetite for long form interviews and long form discussions where you start peeling like. The TV shows, the TV chat shows are sheep dips. But yeah. like you can go back to the 70s to Parkinson, who would be a, a great inspiration for me and that podcast, but also Anthony Clare. Any, any of you listening, there's a, there's a BBC, I think you can find it on the BBC website, podcast website called uh, In the Psychiatrist's Chair. And he was doing that 20 years ago. He's a psychiatrist and he would sit down somebody who you'd know but he'd go really deep into their background or whatever. And it wouldn't be what movie you've got or what book you've got. And that kind of thing is now everywhere. Okay. It's, it's yeah. an inspiration for me. But the media people miss that. They miss the idea that people could sit for two, like Joe Rogan, the, the, you know, the guy who's the greatest podcaster. People like Sam Harris, they're getting millions of listeners to every episode, but they're two and a half hours long. I mean, I know you hate that. Yeah. But they're de- delving deep into a subject no newspaper does that and no tv show does that and no radio show does that but still people went there and people go there so that's what i mean by i think radio will start becoming a little bit more like radio 4 in in britain or pbs in america they'll start they'll start making shows or podcasts and and, and amalgamating and yeah unfortunately the, the the killer was advertising advertising the, the, the weird thing is that media hasn't embraced podcasting and it is a fantastic and cheap way of advertising. Yeah. But as soon as advertising starts coming into podcasts, it's like, yeah, it wrecks it. And we end up going, uh, it's why I, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying that 
Blue Apron or Stamps.com were breaking the doors down to be on a pile with Sean B. But I did get a couple of offers for, you know, 100 or 200 bucks an episode. And I went, no, there's no point. I'm, I'm kind of trying to rebel against that. So what do you think over your, what, 169 episodes? Yeah. What have you given of yourself? And what picture do you think people who don't know you but have listened to every episode would have of you? And in what ways is that right and wrong? Um, Just to say we haven't... Uh, uh, no, I'm just fucking shit out of here, yeah. like saying, so, "What carry the podcast here, so, Sean?" So say that again. Okay, so of all the like you've given, none of them have been based on you, but you've given bits of yourself, and I think particularly ones where we chat, you've given more of yourself. So what picture, or like, if this was your obituary, if if like me and all the people who love you are sitting around having a few pints with Sean and listening, to, uh-huh. just on on the main speaker, you know what I mean? Like, get the DJ in, get the fucking decks up. Hold the strobe lighting just because it'd be tasteless and like have your voice booming out. What snippets are we going to play that, that show a picture of you? What picture do we get? And do you think there's a bit that pe- that your listeners have missed of Shawnee B? Of me personally? Yeah. I think, you know, I'm curious. I'm a curious guy. I, I, I'm interested in people. I'm interested in what makes them tick. Uh, and I also feel, I suppose the main thing I'd say is I felt that there was an awful lot of people who were never heard from who were not famous, but had done great things in their life. They're not famous enough to be featured on the Graham Norton show. They're not famous to be included on the Late Show, or the Late Late Show in Ireland, or the Late Show in, in America. And yet they have lived a life, they're living a life, they've gained a lot of wisdom. There's, I mean, a, a huge one for me was the... the, the there was a few people I've spoken to who were alcoholics and they opened up they opened up with their journey in the hope that it would help somebody else. And any any time I've done a show with someone who's suffering from addiction, those are the episodes that people flock to because there's so many people who are either also suffering from it or who are trying to help someone who's suffering from it, looking for advice on the internet. So if I interview an architect all the architects of the world don't want to come around and listen to what a new what an architect has to say. But if I interview somebody who's ten years sober and, and has picked themselves up off the gutter, people want to hear that, and and, and those stories are, are valid. But you know what? To most of the people, in fact, the the one thing I probably would say is more people have said to me when I've asked them to come on the show, "Oh, no one wants to hear what I have to say." And particularly mm. women. I mean, it was hard, it was much harder to get women. Yeah. When I spent 2019 actively trying to get women on the podcast because I was, and, and not 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 in any kind of um, quota, uh, shape or form, but I I just felt men men just seem to want to talk about themselves, probably myself included. Whereas there was there's some of my best interviews I think were with with women who. And that, you know, there's a, there's a, there's some sort of there's some sort of critique on society there that that that, that and I'm sure you as a as a an activist and a staunch feminist feminist would 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 probably be able to enlighten me more as to why that happened. I would, but I'm just sitting back hearing you talk about it. So yeah, you, I'm you've kind of hijacked this whole episode <laughs> as an interview with me. Um, I look. I think I'm under no illusions that it is a. There's a slightly folly element to it. I'm kind of proud that I stuck with it. Uh, I'm really thankful to the 
people who agreed to come on and uh, talk about their life in a way that maybe they hadn't before. Um, I think for many it's been maybe somewhat cathartic. You know, having had those two deaths this year, Pete Dunne and Dave Buchanan, it's kind of weird when people die who've been guests and who you've had a you know that kind of brief level of an intimate chat with, and they suddenly are no more. And I, I know, I know, probably both of those people probably don't have an interview with them. Yeah, like does life. that validate that it was something worthwhile? And like, if two people ever find it, or two million people find it, it was a worthwhile thing to do because those people lived, and their stories mattered, and they took up the invitation to have a chat about maybe. their life and what mattered to them. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I mean, <laughs> the, I mean the, the the thing about the world is, as we go into data, this podcast is now up on YouTube. No, but it's there for posterity and or posterity or pros- posterity. Posterity is there for posterity. But what is it? It's is it something that will be dug up in two hundred years time as a kind of a snapshot of what it was like for normal people? No, because there's so much stuff that will never be found. I always used to say, someone said, oh, you should get Bono on your podcast. And I said, no, I'd like to get Larry Mullen on my podcast because no one ever hears from Larry Mullen. Yeah. You know, he's the quiet U2 guy. But everyone knows what Bono thinks about everything. The interview that you get with Larry Mullen would be just great. You know, I'm sure Larry Mullen has probably got, been on podcasts or he's probably got a, a great book that's going to come out. But who are the people that you don't normally hear from and what's their story? And, so he said, well, no, it's going to be interesting. And I said, well, we're interested in, we're interested in Coronation Street and we're interested in neighbours and we're interested in soap operas. We're nosy. And soap operas are basically an attempt at trying to replicate a kind of a, a slightly more dramatic version of a normal life. I think that's probably where the listeners that listen to this uh, go to because, there, as I said, there have been some people who I've, I've interviewed who've just gone through the motions it was you know there was a great interview i had in bosnia with somebody who's very very famous in bosnia who runs the uh, the film festival in bosnia in sarajevo and you know we had a great chat and alma was her name and but as soon as i stopped the recording because she'd done so many interviews it was just like boom i'm out and there's i'm not there's no fault with her that's the way she yeah. she is Whereas I'm like thinking, wow, I've got this great connection with this person who's opening up and telling me these amazing stories about her life. But it's just, boom, another interview I'm at. I, I, yeah. You know, and the machine clicks off and you're saying, are we having yeah. another drink? And yeah. It, and it is a great interview. And she, you know, she, she's, she's, a, she's a great woman. But no cuddling afterwards. Yeah, no cuddling afterwards. But, it, it, you know, it's more, there's, there's been people who I've worked with who, might be surprised to be asked to be on the podcast and then you end up with this amazing interview of stuff I didn't even know went on in their life and even if it's just that person has a little ones and zeros recorded thing of what they thought on such, such and such a date and such and such a year about their life um, I don't know is it important probably not well, so much for our big uh, happy uh, new year celebration Anyway, that was it. Look, it's it was it, it is what it is. It's I been think, a shit year. Why would it be a great ending? I mean, I just... Yeah, I think I think where, you know, every time it comes to the end of a year, because I actually started on the tenth of January in uh, twenty sixteen, you end up going. Uh, 
systems at work going on. You know? So I think we, we'll, we'll model along as with this format that we're doing and maybe take it through 2021 and see where it leads. But I, I, I'm, I, I don't think I'm going to go off interviewing again. I think that's... Yeah. So. Unless we come across people that you feel you're uh, going to do that. Yeah, we'll get some, get some people back. We get Richard Watson back as a futurist and uh, hope, hope to get him back in, in the new year and see what nonsense he predicts and we can all slag him a bit. Yeah, so bringing it back to New Year then, what are your hopes for the new year? So are you a are you a positive New Year fan or a negative New Jesus, Year fan? Jesus, have you, you a, fucking met me? Yeah, you'd be negative. I'd be negative. So, I mean, I, I always tend to look back on New Year. And Jesus, this New Year, you, you, New Year's Eve, you, you, you look back and go, surely next year can't be any worse than this. And I don't think it will be. Because I, I think part of us is we're, we're learning to, we're learning to live knowing that the, the virus is there. And, you know, you're not hearing as much, you know, the virus is a hoax or it's just as bad as a flu. You're not hearing as much of that. People are kind of going, okay, it must be serious. Everyone's kind of all over the world. So, you know, even even America, the, 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 the thing that used to irk me most was America going, you know, rowing in behind, the virus will go away, Donald Trump, all that. Yeah. Well, the rest of the world, you know, body bags, as you said earlier, were building up outside hospitals in Italy being taken away by soldiers. Whether it's, 10 times worse than the flu or it's 15 or if it's two we've always as as a species been terrified that a virus is going to come and it'll spread around the world because of air travel very quickly and it will kill us all right and this is what's happening this is a precursor to that because it's not as airborne uh, as the one that would kill us all but if we were in a situation where there was a virus out there that was fully airborne and every time you went to empty the bins or go to the store, you're just, you've got to hazmat up nearly. Yeah. yeah. That'll be fun, you know. And then you have all these countries as well, you know, there's countries like in Africa or maybe in, in, in the Balkans where, you know, they, they haven't got the wherewithal to try and, and stymie the, the, the virus. They can't do lockdowns. They can't do, the, the medicals, their medical um, operation isn't fit for purpose. So they're just letting it rip and... You know, some of them are burying results and trying to make it not to panic their populace. But still, we'll have thousands of kids dying of starvation during the course of this podcast in Africa yeah. because they no food. And that's something we can fix really quickly. So I, 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 I just well, I wish the world would respond to this pandemic to other things. You know, yeah. I wish Ireland responded to its homeless problem. Well, like I, I, wish... I mean, I've seen some really optimistic takes in the past few days and it's not like me. To not roll my eyes, but I've been interested because they haven't all been horse shit. I've seen some interesting positive takes on how economics are going to change and how we look at money and the idea that like money is a fucking concept. We all got carried away with it, but it's a fucking concept. And when the problem is big enough and it affects enough of us, it's amazing how we can suddenly kind of go, okay, we can bend the rules. But when it's only hurting a small few, we didn't. I mean, yeah, we might just be selfish and go back to the way we were, but it'd be nice to think that people would rethink universal basic income it'd be nice that they would rethink sorry why are we okay with those people starving to death mm. in 2021 because we've had bigger problems to deal with and it mattered when it was us and we've kind of broken down the idea that certain things just can't be fucked with because we were too big to fail when it was all of the western countries when it was all of us we were too big to fail 
So I hope that it makes people a little bit more compassionate and start asking questions. Why can't we fix things? Because it's always been that way. Well, why is that too big a problem to fuck with? And I think we're going to see an interesting development with the rolling out of the vaccine and do first world countries get it first and do the do the poor get it first? Maybe not. And um, Look, we have, we, we have the next coronavirus coming, which is yeah. climate change. This is eight years away, 10 years away, 20 years away. Anyway, it's coming and it's going to do the same thing. It's going to kill lots of people slowly mm. and in a way that people can go, well, it's not that. And people will continue with their uh, conspiracy theories saying it's not that, it's not that. But it is that. And yeah. It's coming. And, and we have the wherewithal to fix it. But it's just, it's a shocking indictment on the human species that we are able to know through our science what's happening and as a species fail to act. We, we probably spend more time trying to work out whether we can live on Mars yeah. than whether, and certainly more money than whether, than whether we, we can, can make sure all the fix. children can live today. Exactly, and exactly. And just basic shit. The effort it would take for us to move, not to mind the kind of, you know, you want to see lockdown, let's try and live in a fucking hab in Mars. Um, and I, you know, I like Elon Musk and his, his audacity, but we, we, we have the wherewithal to fix things in this world now that should be coming into sharper focus. And even things like, why is an advertising person paid four times what a nurse is or, or, or five times what someone who's selling groceries in a grocery store, you know? But I can guarantee you people working in advertising and other industries that are overpaid and under-talented, like many of those people will have said over the past couple of years to their children, if you don't work hard, you're going to work out, you're going to end up behind the supermarket checkout. And now this year we've been clapping for all the nurses. We've been aware that, like we've been made really aware who the essential workers are. And I just wonder how quick it will be to go back to people who do fuck all and are overpaid, sitting at home on their holes, congratulating themselves, telling their kids, if you don't work hard, you're going to be like this really essential person that we all counted on. Anyway, I played a little bit here from a guy called Michael Sandel. He's all about the, the, the problems that meritocracy has caused in first world society. So have a, have a listen to this. Here's a question we should all be asking. What went wrong? Not just with the pandemic, but with our civic life. What brought us to this polarized, rancorous political moment? In recent decades, the divide between winners and losers has been deepening, poisoning our politics, setting us apart. This divide is partly about inequality, but it's also about the attitudes toward winning and losing that have come with it. Those who landed on top came to believe that their success was their own doing, a measure of their merit, and that those who lost out had no one to blame but themselves. This way of thinking about success arises from a seemingly attractive principle. If everyone has an equal chance, the winners deserve their winnings. This is the heart of the meritocratic ideal. In practice, of course, we fall far short. 
not everybody has an equal chance to rise. Children born to poor families tend to stay poor when they grow up. Affluent parents are able to pass their advantages on to their kids. At Ivy League universities, for example, there are more students from the top 1% than from the entire bottom half of the country combined. But the problem isn't only that we fail to live up to the meritocratic principles we proclaim. The ideal itself is flawed. It has a dark side. Meritocracy is corrosive of the common good. It leads to hubris among the winners and humiliation among those who lose out. It encourages the successful to inhale too deeply of their success, to forget the luck and good fortune that helped them on their way. And it leads them to look down on those less fortunate, less credentialed than themselves. This matters for politics. One of the most potent sources of the populist backlash is the sense among many working people that elites look down on them. It's a legitimate complaint. Even as globalization brought deepening inequality and stagnant wages, its proponents offered workers some bracing advice. If you want to compete and win in the global economy, go to college. What you earn depends on what you learn. You can make it if you try. These elites missed the insult implicit in this advice. If you don't go to college, if you don't flourish in the new economy, your failure is your fault. That's the implication. It's no wonder many working people turned against meritocratic elites. So what should we do? We need to rethink three aspects of our civic life, the role of college, the dignity of work, and the meaning of success. We should begin by rethinking the role of universities as arbiters of opportunity. For those of us who spend our days in the company of the credentialed, it's easy to forget a simple fact. Most people don't have a four-year college degree. In fact, nearly two-thirds of Americans don't. So it is folly to create an economy that makes a university diploma a necessary condition of dignified work and a decent life. Encouraging people to go to college is a good thing. Broadening access for those who can't afford it is even better. But this is not a solution to inequality. We should focus less on arming people for meritocratic combat and focus more on making life better for people who lack a diploma, but who make essential contributions to our society. We should renew the dignity of work and place it at the center of our politics. We should remember that work is not only about making a living, it's also about contributing to the common good and winning recognition for doing so.
Robert F. Kennedy put it well half a century ago. Fellowship, community, shared patriotism. These essential values do not come from just buying and consuming goods together. They come from dignified employment at decent pay, the kind of employment that enables us to say, I help to build this country. I am a participant in its great public ventures. This civic sentiment is largely missing from our public life today. We often assume that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good. But this is a mistake. Martin Luther King Jr. explained why. Reflecting on a strike by sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, shortly before he was assassinated, King said, the person who picks up our garbage is, in the final analysis, as significant as the physician. For if he doesn't do his job, diseases are rampant. All labor has dignity. Today's pandemic makes this clear. It reveals how deeply we rely on workers we often overlook. Delivery workers, maintenance workers, grocery store clerks, warehouse workers, truckers, nurse assistants, childcare workers, home health care providers. These are not the best paid or most honored workers. But now we see them as essential workers. This is a moment for a public debate about how to bring their pay and recognition into better alignment with the importance of their work. It is also time for a moral, even spiritual turning, questioning our meritocratic hubris. Do I morally deserve the talents that enable me to flourish? Is it my doing that I live in a society that prizes the talents I happen to have? Or is that my good luck? Insisting that my success is my due makes it hard to see myself in other people's shoes. Appreciating the role of luck in life can prompt a certain humility. There, but for the accident of birth, or the grace of God, or the mystery of fate, go I. This spirit of humility is the civic virtue we need now. It's the beginning of a way back from the harsh ethic of success that drives us apart. It points us beyond the tyranny of merit to a less rancorous, more generous public life. Yeah, so, so you know, I, I, I just have great sympathy with his argument there. I think that he's, he's an honest actor who's exposing this whole point, which is that we, we need to bring dignity to workers who are doing work that we think we don't want to do, we couldn't be arsed doing. And just because it's something like that, they nearly should be paid more. You know, I, 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 I really can't What imagine. I find really funny is that people who are white-collar, who may not be working that hard, maybe because they're past the point of having to work long hours and are really well paid, but, and not to pick on advertising, but take this as an example, 
and they kind of go, okay, but how fucking essential is like, does the mm-hmm. world stop turning if I don't get up and churn out whatever fucking mm-hmm. baby food ad I do today? Yeah. But the people with the most money and with the most free time in massive houses are jetting around the world, signing up to this shaman or that new age bollocks, trying to find the meaning of life. And it's almost like the meaning of life that they think they've cracked after five years of meditating is in the mundane. But we can't have respect for the people who work to live. Yeah, and I, you know, look, I, I used to say, I don't even believe this anymore, but I used to say that there was an awful lot of creative minds, I think they've all left, most of them, a lot of them have left, in the ad business who are spending far too much brain power working on, on irrelevant things. So if you had uh, worked with the ad industry to come up with 200 new ideas that cost less than two bucks to produce that would help the life of African people substantially, and then you got other companies to come in and make those things. And mm. you got, you know, so instead of giving money, you gave you gave ideas and you gave actual physical products that actually no, like you know, a mosquito net being yeah. the obvious one, but like somebody had to invent the mosquito net. So what would what would be the fifty new mosquito nets for? But like on a selfish level, around the world. on a selfish level, being that person, what you get from that is purpose. I mean, you get the sense yeah. that you know I'm doing good for the world, but like you get purpose from that, and that purpose brings joy and not everybody wants to do mundane things not everybody some people are good at what they do but if they were if they were using it for important things like that you'd get purpose from it and they'd ironically not have to spend 15 hours a week listening to wanky podcasts trying to find the meaning of life from how do we dig a well with our bare hands like the communities that we just continually shit upon because we're terrified capitalism might die and our privilege might fall apart Mm. it's just this weird cycle that when you get so rich you're trying to learn how to be simple like poor people why you shit on poor people Mm. any chance you could use your intelligence and what you're good at to maybe like make life a bit better for poor people and and really just to keep on the ad thing without an award at the end of it you know there's no interest and so one thing that i think may happen is i think the way businesses trod on people and do business is going to start changing and companies are going to have to start understanding that you know back to the old days where if you're going to have employees you need to look after them yeah with health benefits with a pension and with things like that too business is a family yeah with that that being a which is which is that that's become a cliche yeah but like the genuine spirit behind that. So do you feel, you said you're pessimistic, do you feel optimistic about 2021? Um, I'm pessimistic by nature and always pessimistic. I'm a little bit more optimistic than I should be. And I think that's just because I found articles that I was interested in that were optimistic. I thought, Jesus. Stephen Pinker. Sure, look, let's all get high and read this. <laughs> it's better than the alternative. I see all of these opportunities, but I also see them being pissed against the wall. I don't see people learning what they've learned this year from taking a time to slow down. I see people running frantically towards never, ever having to sit in their own company again. I don't see people thinking, you know, society has broken down the way we never thought it could because it needed to because of a pandemic. Let's not put it back together the way it was because it was broken. Let's put it back together a new way because, you know, times have changed and we need to look at sustainability and start thinking about UBI. I don't see people doing that. I see people panically hoarding whatever money they have and going, fuck, 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 put it back together so we never have to think again. Because I I think most people, either people didn't really give a shit and they were kind of unscathed, or even people who got on well this year. I think the biggest thing is an awful lot of people who don't necessarily tend to think in big terms about existential problems and the meaning of life and society because it's a bit too fucking heavy when you do. 
And I think an awful lot of people have come out of it saying how great it's been that they've had so much time to think and really get to grips with it, but they're going to run squealing back to never, ever having to go that deep again. Yeah, I yeah, I can see that. I hope that's not the case. Me though. too. I'm getting a bit of a sense that there's enough people thinking about new ways. And there's also a little bit of a reset about, like, you know, things like the amount of clothes that we buy or the amount of... People buy watches, people buy cars, you know, a lot of those Just things. shite stuff. Yeah, and, and you're spending a lot, like, the, the lockdowns and, the, and the, the lack of going out has just shown, really, to me, how much money I spend on, you know, just, you know, stuff that's fleeting or stuff that's unimportant. But I was really kind of inspired that it might, that, you know, the silver lining of this might be a new way of resetting humanity but I I'm starting to feel now that you know we get we get an injection and then another four weeks we get another injection and we're immune and so we go back to trying to put the world back to what it was but I, I just I just don't think it'll ever go back to what it was but even on the injection thing the way I see it is that if we say you have to have an injection to be uproar, if we say you're not allowed to travel unless you have an injection, there will be absolute fucking uproar. Yeah. But if airline companies go, oh, no, you can travel, but you have to have two tests within 24 hours. and You also have to come out to the airport to do that. So, you know, basically it's going to cost you an extra 170 quid per flight and it's going to cost you an extra day off work. People will go, how do I bump the line for an injection? Me. Yeah. So if you say you have to have it or you're not going traveling, people go apeshit. But if you say, oh, you get a discount if you have it and you get to bump the line, people will literally run over their granny to get it. Well, there was an article in the Irish Times or a letter in the Irish Times uh, just the other day, which those overseas listeners who will know that the Irish are known for their drinking, this letter writer posited the idea that the way to introduce the vaccine into Ireland so that everyone takes it is to say, well, you're not allowed to buy a drink and an off-license unless you have a card that shows you got a vaccine, which I think would... It's like your travel thing, you know? It's like, you know, Ryanair, the brand that I possibly hate the most in the world, they're advertising Vax and Go right now. Like, they're Vax and Go. The vaccines are coming, Vax and Go to... And they have pictures of people boozing it up in Spain and, and, and j- jumping into swimming pools in Greece. I suppose I'm uh, with you. I, I also think the thing that we missed was that we, we, we tend to think as a, as a species in terms of years. And we, we mm. had this conversation a while back. I think if you said to somebody like the, 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 the coronavirus is here, it's going to be here for 36 months, 24 to 36 months. Everybody goes, oh, okay, that's not too bad. Which is three years. Whereas we think in terms of years, and this is going out on New Year's Eve, is next year going to be better? And the virus doesn't think like that. So I think I think it's a 24-month thing but before things get back to normal, and hopefully there's a new normal. So mine's a bit different because I think in academic years, and I realise this. <laughs> yeah. So when I left school, I left school early, but I remember it took about four or five years for me to stop thinking in academic years. So like when I'm saying next year, I'm thinking September around August. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I, I think it was about four years out of school before I stopped thinking academic years and I started thinking calendar years. But since I've had children at school again, I now think again in academic years. So sometimes you'll say next year and I kind of, I, I'll realise two conversations later, we might be kind of scored with each other. But we've actually totally misread each other because I'm thinking in a different language to you. Even when we're talking about lockdowns, I'm going, sure, that's not a lockdown. You're going, no, it was lockdown. No, it wasn't. The kids weren't, the kids were in school. So we like, we're of a different language for that reason. 
But I think that's somewhat helped because the fact that it was all of 2020, we've had this problematic thing where everyone goes, fuck 2020, glad that's over. And we're going, no, it's not over yet. Like, it's not over. The, the ordeal is not over. Whereas mine's broken up in academic years and I'm kind of, I'm expecting things to be a bit rosier next September, which is the next academic year. Well, you know, maybe to end on a positive note, I think the one amazing thing is that the ability for us to turn a vaccine or three vaccines now out in such record time is testament to... I mean, look, I think you, you could argue that 2020 was the year of science. You know, Anthony Fauci needs a mention... Uh, you know this lone voice blowing into a, a tornado from Donald Trump and, oh, and standing he's my, by his guns. He's my quote of the year, Anthony Fauci. And what, what, I'm, I'm going to get this right. His quote was, "I don't know how to explain to you that you should care for others." Yeah, that might be a best way of finishing this podcast, Anthony Fauci. Say it again. I don't know how to explain to you that you should care for others. Uh, We're recording this on the uh, day as well that my own mother has been uh, taken to hospital and is undergoing an operation um, today. Uh, So uh, all of you, fingers crossed for her. She's 80 and uh, uh, we hope she'll be around for a lot longer. But uh, yeah, troubling times. 2020 has been a bit of a nightmare, but we have 2021. We're going to do a cheers to twenty. 21 may it be all that you hope it to be and any of you who've had a bad year or a rough year we both hope it's going to be better and we both hope that if you've been listening tonight or if you're listening on your own that uh, you know that there's um, at least hope on the horizon we're going to leave you with uh, another track from Pete Dunn who passed away in Pete Dunn who passed away before all this shit happened and yep. probably would, have been, would be laughing at us now from wherever he is this is another track from his album. It's called The Soul of a Man. Probably something we're all going to need to be uh, looking for uh, in the future. Goodbye. Thanks again for listening throughout the year. Thanks again to all the people who've subscribed on Patreon to keep it going. And thank you from thank you to the Don for being my sidekick for most of the year. You're very welcome. And fuck 2020. Fuck 2020. And here's to 2021. Happy New Year, everybody. This is The Soul of a Man, Pete Dunn's new album. Check it out and buy it. It's a cracker. Mm-hmm.